Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Nothing personal word of the day today is shh. It's pretty rude in a conversation, right? Everyone says, don't shush me. Don't do that. Shh. You put your finger to your mouth. Austin Powers shh, shh. stops people. Dr. Evil from talking. Shh. The reason why shh is word of the day is that Clayton Kershaw, the Hall of Fame pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, looked at all of his critics in the media, all the fans who are perpetuating some sort of narrative that he's not a good postseason pitcher, that he doesn't want to pitch, that he can't pitch, that he's only good when it doesn't matter. And he said, S-T-F-U. Did you watch the game? Who's watching the World Series? It was only a three and a half hour game. Coca, did you make it through the entire game? I'm not sure that Coca did. It's his job, and I don't think he could make it through the entire game. How could you when you've got Xbox waiting for you? Clayton Kershaw took the mound, and he had the weight of the world on his shoulders last night. Dodgers favored to win the series, almost one to two. Haven't won a World Series since 1988. Clayton Kershaw Everyone's talking about his over five ERA in the World Series, which, of course, makes me insane, as I said on HQ yesterday, CBS Sports HQ. Give me a small break, right? When you pitch in the World Series, what's he got, four starts? Your ERA after four starts, you can't measure that. You need over a full season to really evaluate. Give me 30 postseason starts or 30 World Series starts, and then we'll look at what the ERA is because that's like a full season. Dodgers needed him in game one. I said it was a very critical game for the Dodgers to win. The Rays had lost three out of four, not hitting well. Kiermaier not feeling well, hurt his wrist. Bellinger of the Dodgers not feeling well, hurt his shoulder. We'll get to all that. Kershaw takes the mound, and I said in the first inning, it's going to be critical when you're an ace. Kershaw is an erstwhile ace. He's more of a two now, maybe a two and a half. But you got to get to him early. And the Rays had a chance, two men on, a little dribbler back to the mound. Kershaw double pumps. And I was thinking in that moment, have you ever had a moment where uh, time stands still? They put it in movies where they put the movie into slow motion. And they're trying to show what a character is feeling when an event is taking place that has really slowed down for them. And that's the key when you're a professional athlete is you want to get the game to slow down for you. And when you see young kids come up in baseball or basketball and the game is just going too fast, they make all of a sudden a lot of errors. So Kershaw gets the ball and he can't get it out of his glove. Glove. He double pumps, double clutches. <clears throat> I don't know why it's called double clutching, Coca. 
what does that mean? A clutch is a is a pedal in a manual car that you hit to change gears. I'm not sure what double clutching means. In any case, he double clutches and then he throws to first base and he gets the out. Critical, absolutely critical. The Dodgers come back in the bottom of the first and don't score. Okay, Kershaw comes back in the second. They don't score. And we end up with the pitcher's duel between Clayton Kershaw and Tyler Glasnow. Kershaw ends up going six innings, one hit, one earned run, eight strikeouts. Phenomenal pitched game. His curveball was working. His fastball now is a low 90s fastball. It's it's nothing like it used to be. Remember when Kershaw was a number one, he was throwing 96, 97 with his fastball. But he found a way to make outs and get outs when it mattered, and the Rays looked flat. Now, of course, when you don't hit, you look flat. That's something we always tried to tell the owner and tell the president. You all, when you, when your team doesn't look good and they don't, uh, and and we say, man, we looked flat today. Well, you look flat because you're not hitting. What's interesting to me about the series and how it started is that there were a couple of storylines that were not given proper attention from a nothing personal standpoint on the air. And I have to mention them because it's, it's too fascinating to me. Number one, Mookie Betts, the MVP, the former MVP, the World Series champion for the Red Sox, the player who was traded by the Red Sox along with David Price to the Dodgers. David Price, the pitcher, then opted out. David Price, who gave up, literally gave up $32 million in salary, 16 paid for by the Dodgers, 16 paid for by the Red Sox, though it would be prorated down to, let's say, $8 million. No, what's 60 out of 162 is like uh, 30%. So he 30%, let's say he gave up $10 million. Five would have been paid by the uh, Dodgers and five paid by the Red Sox, gave that up. And now the Dodgers have been looking for another starter. Not that it would have been priced because he hasn't been all that effective. But as, for example, game two, they're starting a guy they don't want to named Tony Gonsolin, who had a start in the last series when Kershaw couldn't go. But Mookie Betts gets traded by the Red Sox. Then he signs a huge extension with the Dodgers, where he will stay for 12 years for over $350 million. And the Red Sox are absolutely despondent. Their front office, their fan base, everybody. So I want to give you a little insight into what it's like to watch a player who you've traded go on to play in the World Series, because I did it when Miguel Cabrera played in the World Series for the Tigers. You know him. You love him. He won a World Series. It's the exact same situation. We traded Cabrera. He had won a World Series with us. He then signs a huge deal, stays in Detroit, and makes it to the World Series. The Red Sox won a World Series with Betts, trade him. He signs a big deal. And now he's back in the World Series with the new team. The Red Sox front office would like Mookie Betts to go two for 30 and for the Dodgers to lose the World Series. I promise you. And of course, they're going to do the right thing and say the right thing publicly. And they're going to have their Twitter account saying, we love you. We want you to do so well. And they're absolutely full of it. Absolutely straight to the core. So Mookie in the league championship series did not have a really great offensive series, but his defense, as you heard about and saw, was phenomenal. So Mookie Betts in game one decided he wanted to do it all. So he wanted to excel in base running. 
He wanted to hit a home run. He wanted to score runs. He wanted to play good defense. And as a leadoff hitter, he wanted to be the catalyst for the Los Angeles Dodgers. There's no question that he was very aware of the big stage he was on. There's no question that he had a huge desire, not just to show people in Boston that they were wrong to trade him, but to show people in L.A. that he wants to be the guy in L.A. going forward. He wants to be one of the great Dodger players for all time. He wants to be on the Mount Rushmore of Dodgers, which, by the way, doesn't include him. He's been there a year. But you're talking about Jackie Robinson or, you know, we talked about this on Lebertard, actually, Jackie Robinson or Maury Wills or Clayton Kershaw, right? So there are players who right now are on it. Betts wants to be that. Mookie Betts set records last night. That's how good he was, becoming the first player ever in World Series history to hit a home run, to steal two bases, and to score two runs. Incredible, actually. To be able to do something with your feet, to be able to do something with your bat, to be able to do something with your glove. And I'm watching him play. And if you did not watch the postgame analysis on CBS Sports HQ, you should have, because Will Middlebrooks, Hakeem Dermish, and I had a lot of fun after the game. And one of the things we talked about is the first run that Mookie Betts scored was on a ground ball, an infield ground ball with the infield in to first base. Yandy Diaz, the first baseman for the Rays, gets the ball, fires to home, but Mookie Betts had scored and he was safe. Not a big deal. They didn't talk about it much. But then John Smoltz, who is the uh, color man for Fox doing the broadcast, said, pay attention to a little thing here. Look at the secondary lead that Mookie Betts had. And I don't want to get too technical on nothing personal. I just want to say a secondary lead is zero when you're standing on the base. If you're two feet off the base, that when the pitch, when the pitcher comes set on the rubber, that's not a secondary lead. It's what you do when the pitcher starts to go into his windup, even if he's from the stretch, when he starts to deliver the ball. A secondary lead is just that. It's the lead you take off a base after your initial lead that you take when the pitcher is engaged with the rubber. It's a lost art. Most players can't do it. We had Ichiro teaching our players how to take secondary leads when he was with the Marlins because to him, he realized how important that is when you are trying to win a baseball game. Why does it matter? Because Mookie Betts had a big enough secondary lead that without that, He's out at home and he doesn't score a run. A little thing where right now in baseball, it's all about walks and home runs and strikeouts. A little thing like base running made the Dodgers three wins away from their first World Series in 32 years. And the Red Sox fans were despondent. I loved it. Come on. You've got four championships. Give me a break. You weren't going to sign him. What else made me smile? You know, when you get into a World Series, we talked about this and Coco got upset. I think he got upset when I tweeted about it, got upset when I talked about it. But there is a real thing called the tightening of the sphincter when you're playing baseball. It's real. It happens. It happens in the front office. It happens with players on the field. You get nervous. All of a sudden, you get away from doing what you did to get you to the point where you currently are. It happened to Kevin Cash last night. There is no other explanation why the manager of the Tampa Bay Rays for the first time all season, regular season, postseason. So they've played 60 regular season games. 
they played at two plus three plus seven, let's say 12 postseason games. If they swept the first rounds, which they may not have, I can't even remember anymore who they played in the first round or in the second round. That's unbelievable, actually. Coca, who did Tampa beat to get to the World Series? In the first round, they had to play the number eight team, the Blue Jays, so I think they won two in a row. Then in the division series, they had to play the Yankees, who I think they beat in five games, so that's seven. Then they had to beat the Astros in seven, so that's 14. This was their 15th playoff game. Can't believe I just was able to remember that. So... No pitcher had gone 112 pitches. No starting pitcher. As a matter of fact, if you've been watching Tampa during the playoffs, they're very well known for pulling their starters out, what we would consider to be early, forcing Blake Snell to be angry and confused, as an example. Tyler Glasnow was in for 112 pitches when it was clear that he was not able to get anyone out and the inning got away from them when the Dodgers extended their lead. They had a two-run lead on a Clay Bellinger home run. Then Kiermaier hits a home run to cut it to two to one. And all of a sudden, Glasnow gives up a big inning when he just, they're peppering the ball all over the place. And he didn't pull him. It makes no sense because in Tampa, they win because they're disciplined. They win because they do not, ever vary from what they have done. They don't allow for the tightness. They don't allow for the variability of a situation. Why yesterday? Why game one of the World Series when you've got a fully rested bullpen? You've got off days during the course of the series. Why go away from doing what you did to get you where you are? drove me crazy because I picked the race to win the game. I chose the race to win the World Series. It was the nothing personal pick of the day because I didn't count on Kevin Cash being anything other than robotic. And that didn't even annoy me the most. What bothered me the most was watching Clay Bellinger try to catch a shot to center field where he was playing. It's about to hit the wall. It hits off the heel of Bellinger's glove. The ball drops. Bellinger hits the wall. It's a chain link fence out there at Globe Life Field. Did I call him Clay again, Coca? I think Clay must be his father. It's Cody Bellinger. I've done that before on the show. I'm old. I'm really not old. It just doesn't flow off my tongue the way Clay Bellinger does. Can I get back to the point, please, Coca? Cody Bellinger was protecting his shoulder, the same shoulder that he popped out. Literally, his shoulder popped out when he celebrated the home run in game seven against the Braves that he hit in the seventh inning to take a 4-3 lead that ended up being the game-winning home run. He gets around the bases. He celebrates with Kike Hernandez. They hit each other's shoulders so hard that Bellinger's shoulder popped out of the socket. The trainers pop it back in. He's sore for a day, and he claims he's good to go, ready to go. Everything's great. He hits a home run in game one of the World Series, a two-run shot. Everything's great. You're going to tell me he wasn't protecting that shoulder, his right shoulder, when he's going into the wall? It infuriated me so much. 
But then I laughed because after he hit his home run, do you know what they did to celebrate? They did the foot celebration where they touched each other's feet instead of doing the forearm to forearm and shoulder to shoulder celebration. So as the president of the team, I was thinking, all right, that makes me happy. No, it doesn't. It shouldn't have to come to that. Why is it that players have to outdo each other during their post home run celebration, hit each other as hard as they can? There is literally no reason for it. But then we give them credit for the humor of the foot to foot celebration. We give them credit when he hits the home run and he seems as though he's healthy. It didn't cost him the defensive miscue because the Rays couldn't get the big hit, but that's not the point. Play the situation, not the result. It very easily could have. And then what are you going to say? You give your team two runs, but then give up three runs. That's a negative one. But there's a game two today. Game two has Blake Snell, former Cy Young Award winner, ready to go. Going against Tony Gonsolin, not ready to go. Dustin May will be ready to back him up. Urias could use another off day from that three innings he pitched in game seven. He's ready to go. Who's got to win this game? You don't want to go down 2 nothing to the Dodgers because truly, truly, even though the Astros could not win 4-4 four to four against the Rays, they came close. They won 3 out of 4. The best teams can lose. They lost 3 out of 4 to the Braves in the NLCS. They were down 3-1. to one. That means they lost 3 out of 4. It is possible for the Dodgers to lose 3 out of 4. I do not think it's possible for the Dodgers to lose 4 out of 5. Now you're going to say, but what's the difference? Three out of four, four out of five. It is a big difference. The Astros could not win that fourth game in a row. It's hard. You rarely see four game sweeps. You see three game sweeps, but four game sweeps in baseball are extremely rare. When you're the best team in the game, which the Dodgers are playing the best team in the American league, which the Rays are, I don't believe that the Dodgers will ever lose four to five. Therefore, the Tampa Bay Rays have to play game two tonight as though it's a game seven. It is a must win. Now, when you meet your manager and you're going through what lineup you're going to use, when you're talking about how you're going to use your pitchers and you talk about the fact that it is a must win game, what does creep in during the course of a game when you've got decisions to make, it creeps in. It's only game two. We'd only be down to nothing. There's no reason right now to act as though it's a game seven. That is why pre-game strategy is set. And with teams like the Rays, it is firm. And you don't allow your emotion or your heart to get in the way. When we say to you that you are going to manage this game like it's a game seven because this is a must-win game, in what we're demanding is that you don't use anything that happens during the game to change your mind and say, hey, we've got a five-run lead. Let's pretend it's a game two. Let's not bring in our high-leverage relievers. Because in a five, with a five-run lead in a game seven, You are putting in your closer. You are putting in your best setup, guys, because you've got to protect the five-run lead because you've got to win the game seven or else you're eliminated. 
the Rays have to manage tonight like they've got a game seven. Will they? It says here they will. I'm 29 and 24 in the nothing personal pick of the day because we had the Rays yesterday. Did they win? Did the Rays win the game? They didn't. Guess what? I'm stubborn. I'm angry. I'm tired. I'm grumpy. And I'm going to stay on those Rays until they win a game. Take the Rays again. Our main man, Will Middlebrooks at CBS Sports HQ, the former World Series champion with the Red Sox in 13. Great guy. Not just known around here as Jenny Dell's husband, but known as a great MLB analyst. He believes that Blake Snell is going to get rocked tonight. He believes that Blake Snell is going to give up four or five runs, get pulled, and the Dodgers are going to go up two to nothing. I'm fading Middlebrooks because I do believe that Blake Snell has pride. Blake Snell has this sort of um, the red ass to him where he gets very angry and he just, he's he will take the mound today and he will treat this like a game seven. He will make Kevin Cash regret taking him out early in game six of the LCS. That's just how his mentality is. I believe the Rays win this game. Nothing personal pick of the day. We're going Snell over Gonsolin. Are you watching the World Series if you're living in New York? If you're the Dodgers, if you're the Yankees fan, you're despondent, right? You're watching the Rays, the little Rays who beat you in the regular season, who beat you in the postseason. You don't want to play. You don't want to watch this. All right. What about if you're a Mets fan? You want to watch this? You're watching this because you're saying, hey, we got new ownership coming in. This is going to be us. We're going to get back to the World Series for the first time since 2016. We're going to win a World Series for the first time since 1986. We're going to do this. Well, yesterday word came out that made Mets fans exciting, excited. Steve Cohn, the new potential owner. Remember that very billionaire Wall Street guy? Remember the whole Met ownership transaction with A-Rod and J-Lo? Remember that? Hello, anybody? Hello, Norman, hello. Will Steve Cohn be approved by the owners? That's been the question. Well, they released yesterday in a leak-like form that the ownership committee, which is comprised of eight owners out of the 30, had voted in favor of Steve Cohn seven to one. Who is the one owner who voted against him? They're never going to tell you, but I am. One of the owners on that committee is the owner of the Chicago White Sox named Jerry Reinsdorf. We've talked about him nothing personal. I love Jerry personally, but he likes his causes. And I am telling you now, it'll never, you'll never know this, but I'm telling you, Jerry Reinsdorf on that ownership committee voted against Steve Cohn to become an owner because that's how Jerry rolls and that's what he wants to do. And guess what? It matters not. It matters about as much as him not voting for Rob Manford to be commissioner back in the day. Not so long ago. It matters not. But the article was a little misleading, all the releases about this Steve Cohn uh, ownership committee. It said it now goes to the executive committee. And the executive committee of Major League Baseball comprised of different owners that they've got to approve it. That's not practically what happens here. The ownership committee is a committee of owners who vet an ownership application. 
They meet with the potential owner. They look at his finances. They look at his investments. They look at his family. They look at his friends. They look at his application and they look at the amount of money he's going to spend on the team. What is the purchase price? They look at how he's going to run the team because you have to submit an operations plan. Here's who's going to be the president. Here's who's going to be the GM. Here's what the payroll is going to be. Less any of you think, Marlins fans out there, that Major League Baseball didn't realize that, that, that Derek Jeter was going to trade Stanton and Yelich and Ozuna. It's part of the plan. So the Mets have an operating plan under Steve Cohn with what their payroll is going to be. And from that, baseball operations people within Major League Baseball tell the owners, hey, listen, Steve Cohn's buying the Mets. Here's what is going to be happening with the payroll. Here's the type of free agents who he's going to be going after. All of that becomes known. If you're a team like the Yankees, you probably don't want Steve Cohen around because all of a sudden the Mets are going to be trying for the same free agents you are. He's going to try to take over New York in a way that you've owned forever. If you are a National League East team, you may not want Steve Cohen in there because all of a sudden his pockets are deep. I hate that expression. It's ridiculous. Everyone's pockets are the same unless you wear those cargo pants right, where you have to stick your hand in and you've got those zipper pants where you can have those really deep, deep pockets. Do people think that that rich people keep like $100 bills deep in their pockets so they reach into their deep pockets? Maybe it's just a metaphor. Maybe it's a simile. Doesn't matter. The fact is that Steve Cohn does have the money. He's worth, I don't know, $14.5 billion dollars. Not that that matters. Coco wants me to remind you that Met fans should be super excited because Steve Cohn is worth more than the next three wealthiest owners in baseball combined. Coca. W-G-A-D. Who gives a damn? It doesn't mean he's going to have a $500 million payroll. Now he's going to beef up analytics. He's going to do the Mark Cuban act where you come in and you upgrade everything and you do things for your players. You get them great headphones and great Xboxes. You get them in Ritz Carlton's when they're on the road, blah, 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 all that stuff. It doesn't mean he's going to all of a sudden go over the luxury tax. Not going to do it. Wouldn't make sense. But once the ownership committee votes, it doesn't matter if it's eight, nothing or seven, one, that has nothing to do with anything. It could have been five, three. It could have been four, four. It could have been three to five. It could have been one to seven. It doesn't matter. What matters is that once the ownership committee has vetted the application, they take a vote. The executive committee will look at the application as well, but they have no power at all. The power rests in the full group of owners, all 30 of them. There is no way that Steve Cohn's ownership bid will not go to a vote of the full owners, no matter what the ownership committee says. All that happens is the head of the ownership committee walks up to the podium during an owner's meeting and says, he's called up and says, let's call up. It used to be Bill Bartholomew. I think it could be Bob Nutty now, the owner of the Pirates. Could you come here to the front of the room and tell us about the transaction for Steve Cohn taking over the Mets? Stands up and says, we vetted him strongly. We met with him via Zoom four times, and they'll give the dates. 
and we believe that he should be an owner and we give our full support by a vote of seven to one. Thank you very much. And then walks off. Any questions? There's never any questions. No one asks questions in a big owner's meeting. It's all done behind people's backs. Nobody steps up and asks a question about a prospective owner in a main meeting, main meeting with all the other owners. The head of the ownership committee also could go up and say, hey, we met this guy and we voted three to five against, but we believe that you should all have your say. Anytime an owner goes to a full vote, that owner is getting the votes because otherwise the commissioner is not going to let it go to a full vote. Hard stop. There is no vote to transfer ownership of a team where the commissioner does not know what the result is going to be before it happens. Hard stop. Mets are getting a new owner. Chance of success. Hundo. He'll get the votes. We get to talk Cowboys today, and we're going to talk flyovers because I'm incredibly frustrated about what happened with the Joe Buck, Troy Aikman flyover situation. If you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it. We're going to talk about mutiny on the bounty, which is going on. Jerry Jones is again presiding over nothing personal gold. But when we come back, we're going to talk about thruples and Wonder Woman. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name is David Sampson. Today is October 21st. Happy birthday. If it's your birthday on October 21st, you know who you are. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear SGLM. Happy birthday to you. Okay, Professor Marston. I was told that I should watch this movie by a a loyal listener. By the way, if you're on YouTube, please go to Nothing Personal with David Sampson and watch and see if you can find Wilson in the background here in the studio in Stanford where I am. See if you can find Patrick Ewing, and then hit subscribe if you do. If you're listening, trust me, they're here. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, and telling your friends. Come on now, let's go. So I was told to watch a movie called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. It stars Luke Evans. It stars Rebecca Hall. And it stars, her first name is Bella, but it's not Thorne. It is, uh, oh my heavens, B-L-A-N-K-I-N-G. I'm completely blanking. Heathcote, 
Thank you, Coca. Thank you for having the tab open to show that Bella Heathcote stars. Do you know what this movie's about, folks? Because it's based on a true story, and I never heard of it. I had no idea how Wonder Woman started. Wonder Woman, as in Linda Carter, the TV show, as in the DC comic character, it was started by this psychologist who started writing comic books and made up this powerful female character. And it was all about submission and dominance and and all of the things that made people very uncomfortable back when the comic book first came out. And it became a hugely successful comic book character. As a matter of fact, I would argue that Wonder Woman may be the first woman comic book character that was successful. So the story is about how Wonder Woman started. And it started because the founder or the inventor of Wonder Woman, the writer of Wonder Woman, the discoverer of Wonder Woman, was involved in a throuple. A throuple is a threesome that's actually a couple, a throuple. He had a wife and they both had a lover. He had kids with both of them and they lived together, the three of them. Is that strange? He dressed them up. They would play dress up. They liked S&M. They liked ropes. How does Wonder Woman have her lasso? Because they got into that kind of stuff. I'm watching this movie thinking, are you kidding me? I never knew the story of why Wonder Woman became Wonder Woman. It's that good. So I'm watching the movie and I loved it. And then I did what I do because that's what I do. I went and I read about the movie, what's real, what's not real. And the family of the founder, he's dead. They're all dead. The granddaughter distanced herself from this movie, would not get involved and denied that her grandmother was involved in any sort of affair with this other woman, denied that her grandfather was having sex with both of them, denied it all. The director of the movie comes out and says, hey, it's my interpretation. Come on, I thought it was real. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. The basics are there. They did take some liberties. Now the liberties make it fun to watch. I'm not gonna lie to you. And I'm still gonna go with the fact that it's true. All right, Coca, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. I think you should check it out, even though you won't. All right. Can we talk Jerry Jones, please? Because someone wants to. You know what I want? I want to talk to Samson. You guys love the Cowboys. You want to talk to me? Just get on my Twitter at David P. Sampson, D-A-V-I-D-P-S-A-M-S-O-N. Or Instagram. Ask a question. Someone said... This is awesome. You know, the Cowboys are a disaster. We know that. They lost 38 to 10 to the Arizona Cardinals this past week. The question asked was this. Is it possible that the Cowboys issues under their new coach, Mike McCarthy, are worse than they were under their old coach, Jason Garrett? I love that because you know I'm going to talk about it. Thank you for asking that question. Here's the quick answer. No. 
way worse under Garrett because Garrett was there longer. So he had more opportunity to screw more things up and to get more fans and the owner, Jerry Jones, despondent about the production on the field and the lack of wins. Mike McCarthy is a brand new hire by Jerry Jones, a Super Bowl winning quarterback. There's no way that Jerry Jones and his ego will allow himself as owner to tell the GM Jerry Jones to fire the coach Mike McCarthy because the owner Jerry Jones is the one who wanted Mike McCarthy and the owner will never admit to the GM Jerry Jones that the owner was wrong in his hiring. Not going to happen this early. So the owner Jerry Jones goes on the radio to defend everyone who's impugning the coaching abilities of Mike McCarthy saying, listen, he's led a team from mediocrity into the Super Bowl. He knows what he's doing. He's got a ring. Well, Mike McCarthy is not making things easy for Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy, after the big loss, actually said, hey, we were very prepared. I used to hate when our managers would say that after we'd lose a game. And he'd say, hey, we had the right game plan. We were totally prepared. We just couldn't execute it. Hey, it wasn't me. And that's what Mike McCarthy did. We were prepared. We just didn't execute. And then he goes into the self-deprecation stuff. But. I didn't coach very well. He can't say he doesn't have good players because that would be telling his owner and his GM that he doesn't like his team. And he can't say that when your owner and your GM are the same person. So you got to say that you didn't coach well. End of story, right? Nope. There's mutiny already. There is mutiny already. It was reported by Jane Slater on Twitter that Cowboy players no longer are keeping things internal. The discontent that they feel is now going public. They called the coaching staff totally unprepared, saying they don't teach. They don't have any sense of adjusting on the fly. Another player said they just aren't good at their jobs. What do you do if you're the GM right now? What do you do if you're the coach? Two things. I'm the coach of the Cowboys. I'm Mike McCarthy, and I see the players are doing that. I'm having a team meeting. No GM, no owner, no assistant coaches. I am meeting the team alone as the coach, and I'm ripping them a new tush. Can I say AH on this show? I am ripping them one because it is a disgrace. I've got a Super Bowl ring. Do you? You've been here six games. You think it's my fault that you guys can't hold on to the ball? You think it's my fault that Prescott got hurt the way he got hurt? I will make sure you guys are prepared and you be men going out there and leaking and making us look like we're a penny ante organization. We are the Dallas freaking Cowboys. Don't take your laundry publicly. It makes you look like a petulant child. Think it's good for your career to leak stuff saying, oh, Mike McCarthy's not prepared. I work harder than any single one of you out here. I have that meeting, then I go right upstairs to the GM and the owner, and I say, listen, I don't need you going on radio telling me that you believe in me. I want you in this clubhouse as the GM, and I want you meeting with this team. And I want you to say that this is not the cowboy way. This is not the way we operate. Stand up and be a man. You want to talk shit about me? Then do me a favor. Put your name to it. Don't be a source. It's an outrage. The Cowboys are literally the height of dysfunction. They are the height of problems. 
incompetence, ego. But you know what else they're going to be? They're going to be the NFC's champions this year. Yes, they are. What are they, two and four? Is that their record, Coca? Are they in first place at two and four? Is that possible? I don't know. I, don't, I can't see the standings right now. I'm not looking. But let's say they're in first place. My way to see is this. The Dallas Cowboys will not win the NFC East. I was going to say they were, but that's not my way to see. They're in first place. Wait to see is when I tell you something's going to happen, and it does, or if it doesn't. The Dallas Cowboys are going to have a major problem because the Eagles could be the Giants, <laughs> could be the Washington football team, who, by the way, is keeping their name in perpetuity, maybe. Could be anybody, but it's not going to be the Cowboys. Without Prescott and with Andy Dalton, with all of the problems they're having with McCarthy, that team is on the edge of extinction. I miss Survivor. It's on the edge of implosion. Wait to see. The Cowboys, who lead the NFC East to two and four, will not win the division. Mark it. You heard it here on Nothing Personal. Okay, to end the show, I want to talk a little bit about what happened with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. And I want to explain what happened, and then I want to explain why I'm absolutely despondent about what happened. We've talked about hot mics. Tom Brenneman lost his career because of what he said when he had a hot mic. His slur, his homophobic slur. Well, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck, the great announcers. Joe Buck, who, by the way, is working harder than anyone. He's got like a different game in a different place every single day. It's insane. There was a flyover before a football game. I don't remember which game. It may have been the Thursday night game. I have no recollection. What It could have been the Sunday game. I just don't know. Goes to commercial. Their mics are on. So they're not talking to the audience. They're talking to each other. But everybody could hear in the control room and in the truck. Aikman said, that's a lot of jet fuel just to do a little flyover. Joe Buck then said, that's your hard-earned money and your tax dollars at work. And then Aikman says, that stuff ain't happening with the Kamala Biden ticket. I'll tell you that right now, partner. And everyone lost their minds. First, let me clarify. We did flyovers with the Marlins. Guess what? The taxpayers don't pay for that. Believe me, I'm all in favor of taxpayers paying for anything. You know that. Or tourists, right? I'm a taxpayer. I'm a tourist. The team pays for the flyover. Leagues pay for the flyover. It doesn't happen any other way. You as a taxpayer are not paying for any flyover that you see. Let's start with that. Secondly, Troy Aikman, by criticizing the flyover, was in no way saying anything about the military. He was in no way saying he doesn't support the military. He was in no way saying that he's voting for Biden, Harris, instead of Trump, Pence. He wasn't talking about any of that. There is no way to discern from what he said on the hot mic where he is politically. There's no way to discern what he feels about the military, except in this world of social media and of hot mics, there are things 
that get attention that don't need to get attention. And I'm not talking about homophobic slurs. I'm not talking about racist slurs. I'm talking about when there are people talking, which by the way, if you've got a hot mic, just don't say a word. Hit the mute button. Hit the cough button while you're on commercial. Or better yet, just assume that everybody's hearing everything you say. Now, by the way, it was the most watched TV game of the weekend. Really, the most watched show was the Buccaneers-Packers, and that was the game that they were calling, which was the late game, I want to say. I actually don't know. It may have been the late game on Sunday. I can't remember. I think that's when the Buccaneers crushed the Packers, when Aaron Rodgers threw all those interceptions. But Troy Aikman was forced to issue an apology, whether it was his boss who forced him or his agent or his financial advisor. And the apology made me insane. He said, quote, I love a flyover, but it was odd to see one over a mostly empty stadium. But I am an unwavering patriot that loves this country, has always respected our flag, supported the men and women in the armed forces, as well as those in uniform who serve and protect and for anyone to suggest Otherwise, and he went on and on. That wasn't written by Aikman. That was written by his PR people because there was such a need to make sure that he was not going to be canceled, to make sure that he wasn't going to lose his job. He was not saying that a flyover is something that gets in the way of my love of the military or the military should not be doing flyovers because it's a poor reflection of the military to be using jet fuel. He was saying that flyovers are generally for the fans in the stadium. The sound of it, it is amazing to be there when there's a flyover. And there were very few people in the seats, if anybody. But to apologize because it's one of those things that if you come out anti-military, you all of a sudden are our persona non grata. You're disrespecting the military by kneeling before the national anthem. That's not why people are kneeling. You're disrespecting the military by criticizing a flyover by saying, was that necessary? That was sort of annoying. And then you're forced to say how much you support the military. You know where I stand on this. I visited troops. We supported the military as a league, as a team, me personally. Always. That has nothing to do with my view of kneeling or my view of Black Lives Matter or my view of systemic racism and racial inequality or my view of whether or not there should be a flyover. It's three or four or five different things. Troy Aikman was forced to apologize for no particular reason but one. He got a phone call and was told, be very careful here, Troy. Because when it comes to the possibility of being canceled, it's just business. It'll be nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.